Chapter 44 of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2, by Moncure Conway. Chapter 44. The day cannot judge the day said Goethe, and the remark finds illustration in the history of many a great scholar and educator. The student reads with a kind of envy old stories of Alcuin founding seats of learning in France, with Charlemagne and his noblemen for pupils, of Roger Bacon at Oxford or Erasmus at Cambridge, but too often fails to recognize the same men when they reappear in his own teachers, his Agassiz, Jowett, Max Müller. Having for more than thirty years known Max Müller personally, I was impressed by certain characteristics of the memorial meeting after his death held at Columbia University. The assembly was addressed by educators in different institutions, men occupied with various branches of learning and the most striking feature of every tribute was its pervading sentiment of personal debt. He had opened, for one, his field of research. He had stimulated others to their tasks. He had enriched all. What are incidental errata of a pioneer in unexplored regions, compared with this creation of a scholarly race able to correct the mistakes. The master had sat at his task, assiduous, unwearied. Now his hands were folded on his breast. His case was before the jury of scholars, and their verdict was that of the professor of philosophy at Columbia. In a generation rich in scholars, no one could be called greater than Max Müller. Especially impressive were the simple words of the Hindu speaker, the Swami Abhedananda, who spoke always of the deceased scholar as our friend. Max Müller was indeed the greatest friend India ever had. He not only exhumed for the young Hindus whom England was educating the literature of their race, but gave them the means of understanding it. Wherever I went in India, I usually met the students and the pundits, and a number of the titled men, and all of these, of whatever caste or sect, regarded Max Müller as the greatest of mankind, and I was charged with messages entreating him to visit India. This enthusiasm of the cultured influenced even the illiterate, insomuch that when his illness was announced in India, special sacrifices were offered in the temples for their friend. For the many Hindu students in England, Max Müller's house was a shrine. His hospitality to them was pathetically noble. Most of them spoke good English, but he could converse with them in their mother tongue, and it was beautiful to listen occasionally I enjoyed that happiness, to his sympathetic talk with them on their studies and their ideas. These pilgrims sometimes carried to him even their personal sorrows. 
Max Müller had a mission to individual minds. To every thinker his heart and home were open, and intolerance was absolutely unknown to him. "'You know I do not mind difference of opinion,' he wrote me in relation to criticisms on his Hibbert lectures, and concerning some comments I forwarded, he wrote, "'I liked Bradlaugh's articles. They show one of the many possibilities of misunderstanding.' He never showed heat when discussing a religious question, however fundamental. Dean Stanley remarked, I quote from memory, In my early life, few knew even the name of Buddha. Now he is second to but one other. It was this Oxford scholar who created audiences for such studies. Enthusiasts for the light of Asia and devout readers of the sacred books of the East, which he has placed in our hands, the most important ethical service ever done by any man for mankind. When the phonograph was invented, one of its first appearances was at the home of J. Fletcher Moulton. A fashionable company, among them men eminent in science and letters, gathered around the novelty, and Max Müller was the first called on to utter something in the phonograph. We presently heard issuing from it these sounds. Agnim il purihitam yagnasam yad evam ritvigam hotaram ratnadhataman. There was a burst of merriment at these queer sounds, but a deep silence when Max Müller explained that we had heard words from the oldest hymn in the world, the first in the Vedas. Agni, I worship, the chief priest of the sacrifice, the divine priest, the invoker, conferring the greatest wealth. And then the young people gathered around the smiling scholar to learn, no doubt, that the hymns had all passed through thousands of years in a phonographic way, each generation uttering precisely what was poured into its ear by the preceding generation, until their language died, to be recovered in the West, where, for the first time, the real meaning of Agni and human significance of the hymns were studied and known. However, I did not hear exactly what the professor said to the eager inquirers, but stood apart observing the picturesqueness of the scene, and finding in it something symbolical of the whole career of the polite scholar. He had evoked from the oral Sanskrit phonograph the ancient Aryan literature and mythology. The thin, metallic voices became real and cast their poetic spell alike on the learned and on the fashionable, in drawing-rooms throughout Europe and America, adding vast estates to their minds, delivering them from the mere pinhole views of humanity to which their ancestors were limited. I read in a New York paper that Max Müller was somewhat vainglorious. This is contrary to my own impressions of the man whom I have known in his home and in my own, and whose most famous lectures I heard. I can imagine a stranger, on first seeing him, 
especially if in university or court dress associating some hot chair with his erect mane his handsome courtly look and a certain military air characteristic of most high-born germans he was a very peculiar man his virility was expressed in his ruddy face and sparkling eye and some ancestral huntsmen survived in him to such an extent that when on a walk with a friend he would at times unconsciously point his cane as if it were a spear leveling it to his eye the cane was aimed at nothing unless at some point emphasized in discussion max muller was a man even of humility he listened to the humblest person addressing him with strict attentiveness he looked up to some who were really his inferiors for his great contemporaries his love and reverence were boundless here are a few notes from the many private letters before me Quote, i heard to-day that emerson has sent ten pounds for the carlisle monument in london could you not work a little among your friends and countrymen in london i have read your paper and i feel certain that no gossip could shake your loyalty to carlyle's memory i cannot tell you what a loss kingsley is to us i feel as if another cable had broken that held me fast to this life i have been reading your article on emerson with great delight he is a man i love and grudge to america emerson's stay here was very delightful oxford has been proud of his visit i send you the new edition of my hibbert lectures and of my introduction to the science of religion considerably altered and enlarged it was dedicated to emerson but he was beginning to fade away when last he was here i feel cast down like yourself at the death of emerson and have many more names to add to the death roll of this year eighteen eighty two and the last there seems no one left to work for and to look up to now ruskin is the only star of the first magnitude left and he i hear is setting emerson and his daughter ellen were guests of the max mullers at oxford and he was there surrounded by the best men in the place ruskin jowett dodson author of alice in wonderland vice-chancellor liddell and others dr holmes and his daughter were also their guests eighteen eighty six for some days and in our hundred days in europe there is a true little picture of the home in which so many americans have been welcomed max muller and his wife were touched by the tender allusion to the death of their daughter that indeed was a heart-breaking event life to me can never be again what it has been these fifty years of unbroken sunshine but it may become something better in january eighteen eighty eight he writes i became very fond of wendell holmes i liked his books and now i love the man only life seems all over and nothing remains but some duties to fulfill 
the max mullers had many american friends and were kept well posted in transatlantic phenomena and literature i saw he writes in august eighteen eighty three that howells has been staying with you a great artist to judge from one or two sketches which i have lately been made to read by some american friends who were staying here at oxford i wish you would tell me what to consider his best book sacred books you know are so long and tedious that they leave me little time for other reading and i can only afford to read the best i want description of real american life not that constant theme of american novels international episodes metamorphic confusions produced by american volcanoes breaking through the smooth and hard stratification of european society please give me a few titles of such books not too long and worth reading it appeared to me nothing less than a calamity that there should be any discordant note in the relations between max muller and his american confreres knowing well how eager he was to give credit to the humblest of us working in fields connected with his own i felt that the personal attacks directed against him must be some curious survival of the old grammarian's curse may god confound thee for thy theory of irregular verbs i believe that max muller also had a feeling that it was his theory that language and thought are inseparable which had elicited the animadversions but in eighteen seventy four when he opened the international congress of orientalists in london with an admirable address he became conscious of the personal ill-will felt by professor w d whitney's particular friends in germany notably by weber of berlin max muller had distributed in the assembly a printed copy of the last hymn of the vedas close of the great work on which he had been engaged for twenty-five years in his address he had honored the names of the german scholars present weber zdensler windlich spiegel haug perch and all looked with some response from the great sanskritist weber who spoke english but he remained silent i believe max muller then believed that professor whitney was doing him mischief in eighteen seventy five being for some days the guest of professor whitney at new haven i listened to his grievances and took careful notes of them to convey to max muller on my return to england this was done with his approval and in the following may of eighteen seventy six by max muller's request i wrote to professor whitney urging him to accept the proposal previously made by the oxford scholar that all the points in dispute should be submitted to arbitration professor whitney was to select three professors from any country in europe and max muller pledged himself to abide by their decision this proposal was urged in such terms as my esteem for professor whitney suggested but he declined to say more than that if max muller chose to organize a tribunal he would appear before it with his defense 
i never doubted that professor whitney had sufficient reasons in no wise arising from any misgivings as to his own case for virtually declining the proposed arbitration the personal question was bound up with scientific questions as he said and a scholar might naturally be as unwilling to submit his opinions to arbitration as any thinker to submit his creed i have letters from both these eminent scholars which i do not feel at liberty to print but must do max muller the justice of declaring that it was not his fault if fault there was that the miserable misunderstanding was not healed in the only way that appeared open to him in all the severe talk of whitney and weber whom i knew concerning max muller i was impressed by a certainty that they knew not the man they were talking about he was not that kind of man at all in the early spring of eighteen seventy eight bayard taylor landed in england on his way to be united states minister at berlin i managed to reach him before landing with a telegram inviting him and his wife to dinner the same evening at hamlet house where max muller was staying with us a few days max muller was delivering his hibbert lectures at westminster abbey and we had a large company to meet him that evening taylor and max muller sitting on the right and left of mrs conway struck up a friendship almost hungrily they talked briskly while others listened now rolling out german now english and when they parted it was with a promise exacted by the professor that bayard should visit him at oxford bayard said afterwards that after meeting max muller he understood the secret of the value he had derived from the professor's works in his own poetic studies quote, it is the humanity underlying his scholarship Close quote. after dinner taylor went about charming everybody scientist artist literature president hayes seemed to have been acting as still a member of our old literary club in cincinnati when entirely to taylor's surprise he requested him to be minister in germany assuring him that he should be given every furtherance in the work he was known to have on hand the life of gotha when bayard told me of this and of the festivities that accompanied his appointment his happiness almost overflowed his eyes many years previously bayard taylor had met carlyle and wished to see him again but was not sure he would be remembered and wished me to go with him on our way he told me that when he first saw carlyle the old man set a trap for him Quote, i told him that i was gathering materials for a life of gutha carlyle in a disparaging manner said but are there not already lives of gutha there is life of gutha what fault have you to find with that i began pointing out errors here and there in that biography when carlyle interrupted me with a ringing laugh and said i couldn't read it through from that moment he knew that i was searching my subject seriously and was cordial Close quote. 
Carlyle was again cordial and more animated than was usual in those declining years. He discussed minutely problems in the private life of Gutha, and I recall especially his warm accord with a solution given by Taylor on a point made by a German writer, which was simply that the said writer lied. Carlyle responded with a hearty laugh, which was indeed provoked by the dramatically gentle tone in which Bayard pronounced the judgment. I never forgot the solemnity with which Carlyle bade Bayard farewell. With an evident feeling that his own life must soon terminate, he repeated Gutha's ode. The future hides in it gladness and sorrow. We press still thorough. Naught that abides in it daunting us onward. His voice trembled a little when he came to the lines, Stars silent rest o'er us, Graves under us silent. Then Bayard took up the strain, and in warm, earnest tones repeated the remaining verses in German. Carlyle seemed deeply moved. As we left, he took Bayard's hand and said, I hope you will do your best at Berlin to save us from further war in Europe. At that moment, the danger of war between England and Russia seemed imminent, and Carlyle was strenuously opposing it, as indeed he always opposed war. Bayard Taylor had many devoted friends in England, and the mourning for him was profound. It was already arranged that he should be the chief figure at the Oxford commemoration in 1879. How very sad, wrote Max Muller, the news of Bayard Taylor's death. He looked so strong in body and mind when I saw him at your house. He is the second who has gone before who could send him my Hibbert lectures, out of those few for whom they were specially written, and whose approval would have been a real reward. I send you his last letter to me. I thought you would like to see it. But please take great care of it, and let me have it back soon. I feel deeply obliged to you for having enabled me to know your great countrymen face to face. End of chapter 44